One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the tumultuous 24 hours in Russia, Ukraine, and the UN in New York. And we ask whether EU countries should follow Germany in granting asylum to Russians fleeing conscription. Plus, we analyse dissent in the Russian Federation and hear from our reporter on the ground in Italy for the latest on the election there and its potential impact on the war in Ukraine. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, 23rd of September, day 212. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Associate Comment Editor Francis Dernley, our regular reporter Colin Freeman and our Italy correspondent Nick Squires. Dom, I'd like to start with you. Could you talk us through the main updates in the military space from the last 24 hours? Hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. The main bits and pieces from the from the battlefield in the last um, in the last 24 hours is the, the referendum in these uh, in the four areas of Ukraine: Luhansk, um, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and uh Kherson oblasts uh, are underway i will talk about those in a in a little while and then we've also seen the continued rolling out of the the mobilization putin's mobilization plan uh, which has got got off to a, a quick start but mainly in the in the areas outside of the main urban centers outside of moscow and st petersburg certainly uh, which has um, not gone down well there's been quite a bit of uh, uh, footage on social media of people protesting in in these areas but um i should just say i've just i've just come out of a background brief with uh western officials so i'll just give a quick update on what they're saying about the from the ground so in Kherson, um uh, down to the south is uh, the the ukrainian counter-offensive down there uh, they're saying so western officials are saying that um there are several ukrainian brigades involved in that they are making moderate gains and pressurizing the Russian force, which has cut off their north, north and west of the Dnipro River, the Western officials make make it clear that this, I mean, the river there is massive, a thousand meters wide, and we're assessing, or well, they are assessing, that there's twenty thousand Russians on the north and the west uh, of that river, so the right bank of the river. We talk about rivers, the way it's flowing, so from um, uh, from the country into the Black Sea. So the right bank is the the northern and western. Bit, depending where on the river you are. So the Russian forces that's across that river, they think uh, they, they're assessing to be about 20,000. And they are saying that that, that, that that force there is, quote, extremely vulnerable. Um, and whilst withdrawal on the ground would make operational sense, uh, they're saying that the area clearly has political significance, obviously, because it was the first regional capital to be take, taken. Um, and, uh, and and therefore, Putin's not going to let that go anytime anytime soon, even though it would make operational sense to move those those forces back south of the river. Elsewhere, in um, in the sort of centre in the, in the in the Donbass and to the north in the in the uh, Kharkiv area, uh, there have been further advances in the into the Luhansk Oblast. Uh, there is uh, there's mixed reporting about the town of Liman, whether or not that has fallen to Ukraine. I'm not 
I'm not convinced it has. I've seen I've seen numerous reports on both sides, but I mean that is that is deep into where areas previously held by Russia. And if that falls, then you're very quickly on to Lysychansk and Severodonetsk and really, really starting to eat into uh, the, the Russian-held areas there. So Western officials saying that, uh, quote, Ukraine's in a position now to threaten further advances into Luhansk Oblast. And they say this will this would cut into the bone of Putin's noted strategic operations and un- unambiguously show Russia's war is going the wrong way. Uh, they further say that uh, Ukraine has now secured bridgeheads on the eastern bank of the Oskol River. So if you remember, the, the lightning advance of a couple of weeks ago pushed pushed about as far as the, the Oskol River runs north-south through that area. And uh, Russia fell back beyond that. Some areas, the ground lent itself to hold the eastern bank. And in other areas, it just it just wasn't militarily viable to, to, to stay there. So Russia had fallen uh, further, further back. Uh, but it looks like Ukraine now has bridgeheads across the Oskar River and uh, Western officials are saying that Russia is setting up a defence in depth around the town of Savatove. Again, apologies if, if I've pronounced that um, pronounced that wrong. But I'll just take a, take a little pause there before we start talking about the referendum because there's um, uh, there's there's lots to say. Uh, lots to say on that one. But just just before I do so, I, I asked the Western official about the, the mobilisation and whether or not and whether or not this this meant there was any change from Putin's original maximalist aims, i.e. taking the entire country, um, decapitating the leadership in Kyiv, uh, and so on and so forth. And and they said that basically, no, they're, 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 they've seen nothing to indicate that his aims, uh, even though he's, he's now saying it's all about the, the Donbass, and in his words, liberating the Donbass, um, there's nothing to indicate his original aims to subjugate the whole of Ukraine have changed. Uh, they're saying, however, you you may remember that he he said that his his aim there would be to do so without mobilisation, and the fact he's now having to rely on that is an indication the plan's not worked. And if it was unviable before, um, Ukrainian sorry, Western officials now saying uh, that it is completely fanciful. Their words. And uh, the decision to mobilise is the start of the erosion of this fiction. So clearly, the assessment is that Putin still wants to take the entire country. You know, he wants to to deny Ukraine's existence, to wipe it out as a cultural, uh, independent, economically viable, sovereign state. And um, even though there's this mobilisation, which we we will talk about at length, I'm sure, um, there's there's that's likely to have very little impact on that overall. But they're assessing that Putin's overall war aims have not changed. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Listeners yesterday might remember that we mentioned a mystery drone that washed up in Crimea. Yeah, I've got, got a story in today's paper. It'll be online. So th- this is, um, and I suggest you, you have a look at the navalnews.com website and, uh, and H. Sutton's uh, Twitter space. He does, he, he owns Covert Shores, or he is Covert Shores. Um, very reliable source there. So basically, this this thing that's about the size of a kayak, so to 10, 15 feet long, not... not um, not exactly sure what it is, where it's come from, but it's it's, it's washed up on the uh, in Crimea uh, near um, on a beach in Omega Bay, which is right next to the Sevastopol uh, naval base. And uh, and this craft, it's a it's a it's a, an uncrewed surface vessel, so a drone basically, but it's a, um, a single a single craft. So there's no no room for a, for a person. Um, it looks like it's got a single inboard motor, steerable water jet at the back, so it's going to be quite quite fast it will have a very low radar cross-section so so almost impossible for any any surveillance kit land or sea base to to pick it up out on the open on the open sea um it had a mass mounted camera so a fleur forward looking infrared camera so basically a day night camera and also um it's got a, a flat antenna which is either used for navigation or comms or both and there was um, there was some there's another camera in the in the bow or a sensor something forward we're not quite sure what that is but that might be either a rangefinder or maybe another some kind of camera possibly a thermal camera we're not not sure but very intriguingly in the bow right in the bow there are two forward facing sensors that um, that could be proximity sensors or could be uh, could be contact fuses so the the suggestion is this might actually have a have a sort of suicide drone capability so you can you can ram it into a russian russian ship russian submarine and um uh, and there'll be some explosive on board now the local authorities there say that they um say that it was taken out to sea and destroyed if that's correct it suggests that they either knew or suspected that it did contain explosives however 
I'd be quite surprised if they did that. Actually, having having a prize such as this turn up, um, I'd be very surprised if they did just get rid of it. They're probably picking it over as we speak. But I mean, this only this comes days after you remember the Russian fleet of Kilo class hunter killer submarines were moved from Sevastopol to a base a couple of hundred nautical miles further east uh, in Russia itself. Um, and that was put down at the time. So I think it was Tuesday of this week that the, the UK Defence Intelligence tweet was talking about this move and, and it was assessing that it was in light of of uh, Ukrainian uh, ability to target Crimea, which was assessed at the time as kind of high Marsy MRS, long-range precision artillery, as we saw the, the kind of blast on Saki Airfield and on Crimea. But maybe that was... Maybe they knew, I don't know, maybe Defence Intelligence knew, or maybe um, it, it was just this move by the Kilo-class fleet was a, a recognition that there was something out there, these drones, perhaps. We don't know. But but what we do know is that this, this thing has turned up, um, assessed as being Ukrainian. Ukraine said nothing about it, but it does look to be some kind of uh, autonomous or a, a drone uh, that's clearly got a camera on board. Whether or not it's got a weapon, that's, that's speculation, but I think informed speculation. Uh, but it's a very interesting... Um, development nonetheless. I mean, militaries across the world for the last 10 10 years at least, autonomy, i.e. drones, that's the name of the game. Everyone's trying to get into it. Everyone's experimenting with drones uh, on on land, in the air, on the surface and and subsurface as well. So so, so drones, clearly, you you can go go further, further, faster, you know, don't need a a pension, don't need a married quarter, etc, etc. So autonomy, there's a lot of money going into that, a lot of experimentation going into that. So we we shouldn't be surprised to see these things um, out and about now, whether or not it's actually in service and it's a it's a, a fully fledged capability, or this was a this was a one off, a bit of an experiment, a bit of innovation. Bung a camera on it, chuck some other sensors on it, and see and see what happens. I mean, Ukraine have form here; they've done they've done amazing things with with drones. How, how they've sort of weaponized um, the little quadcopters. So it, it could well be um, an an innovative project from them. So, i.e., there might not be any more of these, or or they might have an entire fleet. Which I know I'm kind of kind of covering my bases there, but uh, we we simply don't know. But it does. Look, it looked a, it looked a very viable um, device, very viable vessel. It it looked as if it was seaworthy. Quite what would happen? Maybe it lost comms. Maybe it was. Uh, uh, maybe there was some kind of mechanical failure. Maybe it was. It was it, the, the control system was was hacked in some way, such that it th- th- then floated free and landed up on the beach. We don't know. But uh, but yeah, an in- innovative use of uh, new novel technology, nonetheless. But like I say it's on. It's online now. Um, if you want to have a look, go and have a look. But uh, yeah, it's on navalnews.com as well. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, Just quickly, again, touching on a story we discussed yesterday. Uh, There's been an update to the freed prisoners of war. The latest line is that Roman Abramovich was bizarrely involved. Could you just take us through very quickly the latest on that, please? Yeah, and, and it will be quick because it's, we're still not really sure quite um, what his involvement was. So, so Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who who said asked where he, apparently the the, the uh, freed British uh, prisoners of war asked, oh, where have you come from? He said London, which is you know, I mean, he's not necessarily from London, but it, it kind of implies. Yeah, we're thinking maybe he's trying to uh, uh, gain favour and uh, try and get some of his seized assets back. We're not not quite sure, but yeah. So what quite what what his role was, and of course. That was for the, the British prisoners of war. You've also got Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He was involved, we are told, personally involved. But but the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia were, were intimately involved in negotiating this prisoner swap earlier this week. 215 Ukrainian or prisoners of war that were fighting for Ukraine, including those 10, 10 Westerners, uh, were exchanged for 56 Russian individuals, which included one of whom was Viktor Medvedchuk, the, the, the prominent politician and close close um, ally of Putin. So we are we are no further forward. Is is it's the breaking news? I'm afraid we're still trying to work out exactly what happened here and and quite how this worked and whether or not these individuals, i.e. Abramovich and Mohammed bin Salman, are positioning themselves for similar roles in the future. I would have thought. Um, I mean, this might be a little bit tactical. I suggest for Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, he might be trying to position himself as as a as a broker for any any peace negotiations down the line um 
I mean, there, there are close Ru- the ties between Saudi Arabia and Russia that we that we know of, and there's obviously the the impact on uh, on global oil prices. So Saudi Arabia intimately involved in this, and of course the backdrop to a lot of this is um, Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular trying to sort of rehabilitate the reputation after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the um, the the journalist who was who was um, hacked hacked to pieces in the. Uh, uh, in Turkey, uh, in the in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, so you know there's a, there's a lot of ground to be made up here. Um, quite whether that, how far this goes goes to doing that, I'm I'm not entirely sure. But I, I think we are going to see uh, KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and um, the Crown Prince involved later on. Quite whether Mr. Bramovich turns up with a load of iPhones as we as we are told he he, he had to, to hand out so the folks could could ring home. Um, I don't. I don't know if we'll see him again. Quite. Quite how he got involved in this, but um, yeah. So <laughs> not a great news report, I'm afraid. But we are. We are trying to. Uh, we're trying to bottom all this out. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, next, I'd like to come to you, Francis. Uh, yesterday, you touched on the Russian conscripts believed to be leaving Russia following Putin's announcement on conscription. Have there been any more updates on this topic? Thanks, Claire, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, yesterday I talked about how Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia and Poland are imposing a ban on entry for Russian citizens, including those who have Schengen visas issued by third countries. They cited the security risk as their main motivation for doing so. But there's actually been an update in this space in the last 24 hours, as we now hear that Germany is preparing to take Russian deserters refusing to fight in Ukraine after the mobilisation has sparked this mass exodus that we talked about at length yesterday. So the government in Berlin... Uh, have said that it will continue to offer political asylum to those, quote, courageous, close quote, enough to oppose the Russian president's war in the neighbouring country. The interior minister has said, quote, deserters threatened with serious repression can, as a rule, obtain international protection in Germany. Anyone who courageously opposes Putin's regime and thereby falls into great danger can file for asylum on grounds of political persecution. Now, this is controversial for reasons that we've discussed in the podcast in the past. There's a strong strain of thinking that allowing objectors to leave simply acts as a sort of relief valve for any pressure the Russian government might feel from those citizens. So instead of keeping them in Russia, facing the realities of of Russia's attacks, it's the only means of continuing uh, protests and pressure countering the war. So that argument goes. And indeed, there is evidence that that works. For a regime to be toppled, you need to have a large enough contingent of of those in opposition to the regime in the wings who are ready to take over. That's what we saw in the former Soviet states when the Soviet Union collapsed, is that those who in many situations had formed the opposition, the democratic opposition, then took over. That was certainly the case with the Czech Republic. But as we've talked about at length in the past, with Putin's Russia, hundreds of thousands have been encouraged to leave. So there isn't necessarily this um, contingent that is present. But then there's another line of argument that I touched on yesterday, that it's actually better to encourage people to flee. Uh, And that seems to be what the German approach is. The argument being that it exposes these people who leave to the truth of the war, um, who can then feed that back in to their families and friends uh, back home. It also humiliates Russia when you've got tens of thousands of your citizens uh, fleeing conscription. It also takes the educated people away from Russia um, who uh, you need in order to enable to be pursuing the kind of imperialist ambitions that Putin clearly has. And fundamentally as well, it takes away potential soldiers from Putin to fight. So as I say, that's the other strain of thinking. Now, Zelensky, in his speech last night, has also waded in on the protests and the question of people leaving. Now, his position seems to be that he's hedging his bets rather than coming down on one side of the argument or the other, perhaps because he doesn't want to be seen as condemning the Baltic states or Germany. But I think it's worth quoting him in full because they were an interesting remarks. So this is President Zelensky last night. Protests against mobilisation took place in the cities of Russia. 
albeit not massive, they took place, not only in Moscow and St. Petersburg. We know the real mood in the, real, in the regions of Russia. We see that people in other national republics and regions of Russia understand that they were simply thrown, thrown to death. Now there he is alluding, of course, to something I think we're going to cover in more detail next week, which is the fact that many of these soldiers who are being conscripted are, um, eth- uh, are, are from other ethnic minorities within Russia. But as I say, we'll come back to that topic. His quote goes on. You are already you are already accomplices in these crimes, murder and torture of Ukrainians because you were silent, because you were silent. And now it's time for you to choose. For men in Russia, there is a choice to die or live, to become a cripple or to preserve health. For women in Russia, the choice is to lose their husbands, sons, grandchildren forever or still try to protect them from death, from war, from one person. 55,000 Russian soldiers died in the war in six months. Tens of thousands are wounded and maimed. Want more? No? Then protest. Fight back. Run away. Or surrender to Ukrainian captivity. These are the options for you to survive. So as I say from this, you could say that he's, he's not angling for people to remain in Russia and oppose the regime instead of leaving or surrendering. He is seemingly happy with either. And just to conclude, I, I think... Perhaps there is a middle way here. Um, you can encourage and grant asylum to those who are already a soldiers and are trained and fighting. If they know that they're being treated well, like as I've talked about in the past, the, the, the German army felt that there was a good justification to, uh, to, to um, hand themselves over to the British because they knew they would be treated well and that ultimately precipitated the collapse of the German army. If they feel they're being treated well, then that could trickle through the ranks and lead to mass desertions. So that would be one approach is be, yes, we are grant asylum to, to the soldiers. But then for those ordinary citizens that have not yet been trained, you could follow the line of the Baltic states and keep them there and let the pressure build to bursting. Obviously, the latter is an uncomfortable approach, but ultimately this is war and that's how politicians have to think. As I say, I'm not positing an argument here, but I'm just saying that those are the options as I see it and perhaps the middle solution that may well be the consensus that we find on this in the coming days. Could you talk a bit about who the different groups are in Russia who are protesting at Putin's announcement? Well, I think it's a good question. Um, I, I think the... It's worth thinking about, and I'm, my analysis here is based on um, some very informative tweets by Greg Yudin, who's the head of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. And he's talking about the three distinct groups in Russia. So there are radicals, which are the extremely loud minority that actively supports the war. They're perhaps about 15 to 25 percent. Then you've got dissenters who are a sizable minority that categorically opposes the war. Now, they're the ones who are banned from Russian media and are generally very depressed by the state of affairs at present. They're about 20 to 25 percent. Then you have the larger contingent, which is the layman, the sort of passive majority that are completely depoliticized and don't want to have anything in common with what's going on. Now, his point is, and I think this is accurate, that the layman are now are those who are enjoying their lives whilst people are dying in Ukraine and uh, and have been, were promised by Putin that they uh, would not feel the consequences of this war. But now, of course, that is changing with these conscription measures. And at the same time, you've got the radicals who are being seriously affected by the Ukrainian counteroffensive. They're finger pointing, blaming the military leadership and indeed Putin for this defeat. So what we're seeing here is that both the radicals are angry with what's going on and the as yet undisturbed laymen also starting to feel that, that, that things are changing in a direction that they don't necessarily feel happy with. So this balancing, delicate balancing of uh, society as a consequence of this war is now starting to shift in quite a profound way. And as I say, part of that is these these mass mass, um, uh, numbers of people trying to leave, but also generally the kind of anger that's been stirred that's triggered perhaps some of these protests, but also the general frustration that we see echoed in, in social media. So, but I think most importantly of all, it is uh, 
this is the first time, and he makes this point very strongly, that people are starting to realise that Putin is not invincible. And he says it's hard to overestimate how important this myth is in Russia. The belief that Putin will prevail no matter what, paraly- no matter what paralyses all independent action. And we've talked about this in the podcast in the past. I, I, I point listeners to a piece by Christian Neef in Der Spiegel several years ago where he talked about this shadow of Putin and how it effectively not only him, but also the, the, the history of Russia and Russian culture means that there is a general acquiescence to their fate. And um, uh, in, in many cases, the, the, Putin has strengthened that by seemingly being this invincible figure that won't disturb people's lives. Now that is changing, there may well be a very, very profound disturbance indeed. And, and we don't yet know the consequences of that. So some very interesting analysis there that I thought I would, I would also discuss, that when we talk about the Russian people, it is very important that we break that down further. One final question from me. Could you talk a bit about who the different groups are in Russia who are protesting at Putin's announcement? Yes, well, that's the big. Those are the groups that I've just uh, I've just mentioned. Um, but I think that the the main core of the protest protesters are the ones who are already proactively dissenting against the war. So um, the sort of sizemore minority that I alluded to a moment ago, twenty twenty five percent. I think they are the majority of the people who felt strong enough uh, at this moment of, of national anger to come out. But as I say, I think there's also evidence as well that there are large contingents of the laymen who perhaps also have joined in some of these protests because they don't like the idea of being conscripted. So that, I think, is the, is the lay of the land at present. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Francis. So discussing protests leads us nicely to our next guest, Colin Freeman, who interviewed a group you might call Russia's original protesters, Pussy Riot, which you can find in today's issue of The Telegraph and online at telegraph.co.uk. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Could you give us a brief overview of who Pussy Riot are and why they're such a controversial group within Russia for our listeners who might not be familiar? Yes, uh, Pussy Riot are an all-girl punk collective. Um, they formed in Moscow in 2011, and they sing and campaign about civil liberties, LGBT rights, and feminist issues, that sort of thing. Um, perhaps not that different from a lot of groups in the West, you may think. However, what you have to bear in mind is this is Russia, and these kind of things are not taken for granted there. Um, so they, when they first started, they specialised in kind of what they, what you might call guerrilla gigs, where they would suddenly appear outside a prison or indeed in Red Square um, and suddenly put, um, put on a, a a show. I say a show. This is not music in 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 the normal sense. They brandish guitars, drums, basically any instrument that can make a noise, uh, make a heck of a racket and then shout out their protest lyrics, um, meanwhile wearing um, brightly coloured balaclavas. It, it's, it's, um, it's music as a form of protest, really. And um, I, from what I've seen, I think they, they usually last a few minutes, sometimes a bit longer, before um, the security police uh, turn up mob-handed um, and uh, drag them away. Um, they, 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 they were around for a couple of years, and then in, in, 20, in 2012, that was when they really gained notoriety, when they did one of these guerrilla gigs at a cathedral in Moscow called the Church of Christ the Saviour. They sneaked in there, um, past the, uh, the, the watching eyes of the nuns and the security guards, and then pre- performed this song. I'll, I'll give you some, uh, just a taste of the lyrics, which gives you a sense of um, how they see Russia and uh, how they see Putin. Uh, Mother of God, rid of us, rid us of Putin. Liberty is gone. Gay pride sent to Siberia in chains. Shit, shit, it's God shit. Um, now, excuse my French there, but um, that I think shows you, um, perhaps explains why this caused such outrage in in Russia, especially given that um, Putin has formed this 
uh, this alliance of communions with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, Pussy Riot were accused of blasphemy at that time and were eventually um, uh, uh, were eventually sent to prison for three years um, apiece. The, the three main people involved in this particular um, protest at the cathedral. Um, that, that then made them um, you know, prisoners of conscience in the West, uh, people complaining that these sentences were, were far too high. The band themselves just said, look, this was, this was a joke where, where jesters. Um, but since then, they've, they've become quite famous, pretty famous worldwide. Um, they are currently touring in the UK. One of them has actually escaped from Russia. The other two have just left on their existing passports. But um, just just to sort of explain, though, that um, you know why these people are not just ordinary rabble rousers. Obviously, uh, anyone who's been protesting against Russia for a long time is certainly going to be seen to be vindicated in the West's eyes at the moment. But um, when they did this original cathedral protest, I think most people in the West just thought, oh, they're, they're punks, yeah, they're, they're finding, uh, they want to be anti-government and they've just staged this thing in a cathedral because they want to make it look, they, they want to find an easily offended constituency that can generate headlines. What they were actually protesting at the time about specifically was Putin's alliance with Patriarch Kirill, who is the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, they both share this rather conservative vision of, um, of the greater mother Russia, um, all about breathing for the nation and so on and so forth. Um, and um, Patriarch Kirill has since become, uh, since the war in Ukraine, one of the very prominent cheerleaders and ideological sponsors of the war. Um, he's met with Russian troops and described this as a kind of holy defense of the motherland. Um, and uh, as a result of that, um, the uh, many of the churches in the West have been saying that, they, that he should be kicked, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church should be kicked out of the World Council of Churches for um, actively supporting a war of aggression, to quote um, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And um, Patriarch Kirill was also put on an EU sanctionless list back in June, but um, was then removed last minute after objections from Hungary. Um, but I think what that shows us is, though, that certainly... Um, uh, Pussy Riot were um, not just a bunch of you know anarchist punks making trouble and generating headlines. They were quite ahead of the game in a way in identifying this rather worrisome alliance between, or this rather worrisome way in which Putin has co-opted the the moral authority, if you like, and, and perverted the moral authority of the Russian Orthodox Church into this war in Ukraine. Thanks for that, Colin. As you've just mentioned there, you spoke to the band during their tour in the UK. How safe would these women be if they were to return to Russia? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, one of them, uh, the what were, Maria, who was one of the ones who was actually took part in the uh, in the original cathedral protest, she escaped from uh, Russia back in April time. She had been in, been back in jail several times. She was actually in jail when the invasion of Ukraine started. She was then released, um, under, put under house arrest, and then was told, though, I think, uh, as the security climate during the, you know, in, in the wake of the invasion worsened, she was told she was going to get sent to a penal colony to be held there rather than being under house arrest. And so with the aid of some friends, she escaped from the apartment that she was uh, ordered to you know, be on bail in um, from under the noses of some security um, agents who were apparently staking the place out. She escaped dressed as a, a, as a food delivery person, a kind of Uber um, food delivery driver. Apparently she um, just uh, borrowed a uniform and uh, got, I think, got a friend to go into the flat, into the, the apartment block um, dressed in... Um, food delivery uniform, then borrowed that uniform and went out herself. Then she basically, to cut a long story short, is um, flitted across the um, Belarusian border using some travel documents that a friendly European country had um, given her and over to Lithuania. The other three um, for this performance, so, so she's been here since then in Europe. The other three used their, just I think their regular passports. Russian citizens still can largely come and go from Russia. Um, 
But I did ask them. So I, you know, having um, played uh, or having now embarked on a series of um, uh, on a tour of Europe um, in, in since the, the the middle of the summer, are you going to go back to uh, Russia after this is finished? And there was a pregnant pause, shall we say? Um, I said, "Can you go back?" And one of them said, "Physically, yes," which I think tells you everything you need to know. I think it's possible they will go back. These are not people who are scared of a jail cell or mistreatment. They've been whipped, tear gassed, um, beaten up by thugs countless times in Russia. So the, the threat of arrest does not frighten them. But I, I dare say on this occasion, it is something they're probably going to weigh up fairly carefully because it might be that they, they get really exemplary sentences. I just don't know. But um, certainly they, they were a little bit coy on exactly what they plan to do next. But um, if you want to check them out, they are playing in Canterbury tonight and tomorrow at the university. And then they will be touring again in the, uh, in, in the UK at the end of October. Colin, can I just jump in here? Hi, it's Dom here. Um, great to have you, mate. Um, just quickly, when you were chatting um, to the band, did they give you any indication of, of their experience when they were in jail? Were they, were they, um, were they badly treated by the, either, the, um, either the authorities or the other prisoners in there? Or, or were, their views, were their views sort of supported by other, other, other people in the jail? Um, I, I did ask them a bit about their, their time in jail. Um, I think they did get some harassment. They do say that uh, people are sometimes paid or ordinary citizens are sometimes paid to come up and uh, try and give them grief. Um, but uh, I, I think that they, they certainly have a following amongst Russians who are critical of the government. Equally, they are not popular with the um, the ordinary religiously, you know, R- Russian Orthodox believer in the street. Um, I, I, if, if you have time to watch it, there's a very good film all about Pussy Riot. Uh, came out in 2013, a, a, a documentary biopic called Pussy Riot Punk Prayer, um, where it shows you the reaction of some of the Russian Orthodox community to what they did, which is, you know, the, the pretty baffled and pretty appalled. And uh, it should perhaps be pointed out that um, Russian Orthodox believers did not have an easy time in the last century. Their church was banned. And so having somebody coming in and performing what they would see as a, a blasphemous act in the church, even if it's primarily a blasphemous act directed at Putin co-opting that church, it is not something that is taken lightly. There's also a certain amount of bafflement at just, you know, who these people are. It seems very much as a kind of Western-style collective in some ways. There's a, an amusing bit in the film where um, a, a Russian Orthodox believer says, oh, you know, I, I, I don't even understand how you translate the name Pussy Riot. It, it translates as deranged vaginas. So they, they have some support, but I think you could probably say it's, it's the usual suspects by and large, the people who don't like Putin, the, the 20 or 25% of the country who are against the war, perhaps, as Francis was alluding to earlier. Cheers for that, Colin. Um, And finally, we are joined by Nick Squires, our Italian correspondent. Nick, it's great to have you with us. With the Italian election on the horizon, it would be great if you were able to weigh in on its implications regarding Russian sanctions and the Ukraine invasion more broadly. So, yes, um, thank you for having me. Just to sketch out the general picture, we have a a general election here on Sunday and all the polls suggest that that election will be won by a centre-right alliance consisting of three parties. Uh, Now, the dominant party, the strongest party in that is called Brothers of Italy. It has fascist origins. It's led by a woman called Georgia Meloni who's tipped to become Italy's first female prime minister. Now, in terms of Ukraine and sanctions and Italy um, giving weapons to the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia, she has very much towed the line of the outgoing government of Mario Draghi, former European Central Bank president, in that she says we're um, totally behind the Ukrainians, we're behind NATO and the EU, and she's espoused very much a sort of Atlanticist approach 
and um, has tried to give the message that, you know, in, in government, I will be a safe pair of hands and I will continue that policy of support. However, her two allies in this coalition have very different views. One of them is Matteo Salvini, who's the head of the um, hard right league party. He has been extremely ambivalent uh, on sanctions and on sending weapons to the Ukrainians. He's consistently argued that sanctions aren't working, that they um, are doing huge economic harm to Italian companies that um, have in the past exported lots of stuff to Russia from cars and um, food and, and fashion, all that sort of thing that does very well, particularly in the north of Italy. And he has, um, for many years, had a, a very sympathetic um, view of uh, President Putin. He was famously photographed in Red Square when with um, um, the image of Putin, and he's, he's praised him as um, a very strong statesman. Now, the third um, person in this um, right-wing coalition uh, is Silvio Berlusconi. And he, as readers will probably know, has also had a very long-standing, cosy, friendly relationship with Putin. Um, he's been on holiday to, uh, with him. Um, they, they posed in, they're smiling, wearing big, uh, furry Russian hats a few years back when Berlusconi was prime minister. Um, so he has been very much um, a cheerleader of Putin. He has rode back on that a little bit since the invasion of Ukraine in February, but it all rather came undone last night because he gave a rather extraordinary interview to an Italian current affairs program on TV um, in which he, Berlusconi, said that um, or claimed that Putin had been forced into invading Ukraine. He didn't really want to, according to Berlusconi. He'd been compelled to do so because of um, pro-Russian separatists in Donbass and by his party supporters, and that all he wanted to do, all he wanted to do his objective, uh, according to Berlusconi, was um, get to Kiev in about a week, um, impose what Berlusconi called a, a government of decent people, uh, of, of sort of, of gentlemen, and then get out of Ukraine. And that would have been job done, according to Berlusconi. This has not gone down very well in, in Italy, as you can imagine. Hi, Nick. Sorry, it's Francis here. Um, I just wondered uh, on this question of what's going on in Italy and its ramifications more broadly. Uh, you, you alluded to the fascist past of, of, of the party that we're now expecting to, to be in the coalition how much has that fascist past been denounced? Or do you think that strain of thinking is still actually beneath the surface of the party and that some of the pronunciations that have been made condemning Putin and other things are actually somewhat uh, uh, illusory? Well, certainly Meloni, the head of uh, Brothers of Italy, has, has bent over backwards during this election campaign and previously to say um, that uh, she has nothing to do with fascism, um, that fascism, fascism has been consigned to the sort of um, dustbin of history. Um, her, I, I think there are elements in her party, if not her herself, as supporters at the grassroots level who are at the very least nostalgic for Mussolini and for the fascist um, era. It lasted about 20 years in the 20s, 30s and, and up into the war. Um, certainly speaking to ordinary Italians who support her, when I raise the, the F word, almost universally, people say, look, that's from decades and decades ago. I'm not a fascist. I don't want a fascist government. The days of political extremism are, are over. The days in which Italy was sort of riven by um, what they call the Anni di Piombo, the years of lead, the, the shooting and the terrorism between far right and far left, um, though, those days are over. Um, so I would say that it, she has uh, an ambition an, an ambiguous relationship with the past. I think she's not really um, condemned it outright, but she's certainly trying to move away from that political legacy. Nick, hi, Dom here. If I could just jump in quickly. Great to have you on. Um, 
so Berlusconi, I mean, what do you think happened there? Was Did the mask slip and we saw his previous yeah, very strongly pro-Putin views come through? Or was, you know, was this an absolute gaffe? Um, I just wonder how far away from the base of his party his, his those comments last night were. And therefore, do you think they're going to have any impact, sort of last-minute impact in the polls? Well, in, in terms of whether it was a gaffe, yes, definitely a, a huge gaffe. And he's put out a very hasty retraction just today saying, um, claiming somehow he was misrepresented, even though it's a it's a TV clip for, for everyone to see. And he's reiterated that we, Italy, um, we're, we're right behind NATO and the West. Um, I mean, I would point out that he's 85. He's no spring chicken. He's coming up to his 86th birthday and, and whilst but there's by no means a suggestion um, of sort of cognitive decline you know the, the guy the guy is not a young man anymore in terms of whether it will make much difference at the election I mean he's already very much the junior partner in this right-wing alliance um, his party Forza Italia which is probably the more moderate of the three um, the polls suggest he'll get about eight percent of the vote so um whether 8% might go down to 7% or 6% because of these comments, I don't know. But he, he's certainly the junior partner in, in this alliance that's expected to win on Sunday. Thanks very much for that, Nick. I'd like to come to our final thoughts. So over to you first, Dom. Well, I think we just need to keep an eye on on the, this mobilisation in, in Russia. Um, the protests against it are making great headway across social media um, however in the in the brief i had like i say about an hour ago with with western officials we, we were asking about this and they say well i mean there have been bigger protests in recent years over over a number of issues so so we should be careful about saying this is the the start of the crumble uh crumbling of of, of putin's regime if it carries on of course that 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 is that will be significant. So let, let's keep an eye on on um, what's happening over there. And of course, just the final point there is that the really interesting thing here is that for many, many months, the first few months of this war, the news wasn't feeding into to Russian society. If the if it was going anywhere, it was to the um, to, to to those in the in the establishment, in the government, and to those of the, the hardcore right-wing ultra-nationalists, and they're, they're never going to have their opinion swayed, and they were, albeit sizable, but still a minority. It was only really after the attacks on Crimea, the Saki airfield attack, for example, and we, we saw those long queues of people trying to flee Crimea, that those messages from those people were going back into Russian society. And now we get all this. So this is the first time that Russian society has really been bombarded by this. And I don't think they'd be so stupid as to as to still be dancing around the head of a pin of you know, what's a special military operation and, and what's a war. So this is the first real time that, that news and the consequences of these of, of Putin's actions are, are, are really being shoved in front of society. So we really do need to keep, keep an eye on that. Thank you. And Francis, if I can come to you. Now, there are a couple, if you'll permit me, very brief. Um, I talked yesterday at length about this question of of China intervening and potentially putting a stop to Putin's nuclear rhetoric. I was quite struck by a tweet put out only an hour ago by the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine saying that he met with State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Qi to discuss relations between Ukraine and China. My counterpart reaffirmed China's respect for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, as well as its rejection of the use of force as a means of resolving differences. So if that is a sign of China putting itself more sympathetically towards the Ukrainian democratic side of the argument, then that can only be a positive thing. Perhaps it's indicative of conversations taking place behind closed doors at the UN, which may signal some kind of shift in policy. We may never see the ramifications of this publicly, but if pressure is being put on Russia by China, then that may well lead to a shift in the dial of this kind of rhetoric that we were talking about at length yesterday. So just wanted to make a quick reference to that. But my final thought comes again to uh, an issue which we still want to cover in more detail. But as I say, information is still currently quite scarce that's verifiable. But we are hearing that a US envoy has said that Russia has now forcibly 
deported up to 1.6 million Ukrainians. And they have urged a UN mandated commission of inquiry to investigate this. Of course, these are extraordinarily high numbers. And we can, we, we, we've had stories of what may have all been happening to these people. They may have been taken away to um, uh, prison camps and all sorts of things. And we will do a full analysis of this in due course. But I don't want it to be a forgotten feature of this, something that is overshadowed by the military and political developments, because I think it is still uh, a vitally important issue and one which will have big ramifications for how this conflict is thought about in, in, in the years and decades ahead, and yet it's still an unspoken tragic element of what is taking place at present. So I just wanted to, to end with that. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, and if I could come to you next, Nick. Yeah, sure. So just as a summing up, I suppose I would say that... Um, you know, the elections on Sunday, obviously, we don't have a result yet. We're not we're not sure. We don't know for sure that the right wing alliance will win. It looks like it probably will. But what their direction will be towards Russia and Ukraine, again, is an unknown. We don't know what the exact makeup of the government will be, how strong Maloney will be, how strong uh, Matteo Salvini and Silvio Berlusconi may be um, in that administration. So I think the direction that Italy or that any change in direction that Italy may take is, um, is one to watch. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show in your country. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. And thank you to all those who direct message us on Twitter from the farthest corners of the globe. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.